This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Professor Greg Barton, Chair in Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University, joined me on the phone to talk about the global rise of right-wing extremism, particularly in Europe, and the Christchurch terror attack last week. Then, historian Carolyn Rasmussen joined me in the studio to talk about Melbourne's progressive power couple, Doris and Morris Blackburn. We discussed the contents of her new joint biography, The Blackburns, Private Lives, Public Ambitions. Then finally, Andrew Walter, Professor of International Relations at the University of Melbourne, joined me in the studio to give us an update on Brexit ahead of the looming deadline. I'm now delighted to have with me an expert in security and counterterrorism. He is the chair in global Islamic politics at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin University. And uh, he has a great deal of expertise on a range of subjects, uh, but we are specifically going to be focusing on and uh, bringing our attention to Friday's events in New Zealand where we saw a an Australian man, um, an Australian citizen who uh, conducted a terror attack in Christchurch on two different mosques and uh, killed 50 people and has injured another at least 50 or around 50 and um, we're still obviously waiting to see how those people fare and hopefully they are recovering and um, we obviously send our thoughts and deepest condolences to those who have been affected directly and indirectly and uh, of course behind this was uh, a range of views particularly um, tied to right-wing extremism and um, racist ideologies. And so we're going to be discussing um, the types of ideologies behind this attack and where they come from and uh, and put this into a more global context as well. So I welcome now Professor Greg Barton, who joins me on the phone. Hi there, Greg. Hi. With you, Amy. It's great to have you. And um, I'd just like to talk a bit about um, the background, not of this particular attack necessarily, but first up, um, we've seen a lot in the news about um, right-wing views and racism and Islamophobia in Australia. And we've certainly seen different kind of rallies and protests that show that there are people who hold uh, views that are quite extreme in that area. We've also then seen um, similar but slightly different um, protests and, uh, and gatherings occur in America um, with, and also in Europe um, with various and, some, and sometimes large-scale um, gatherings around similar ideologies. And um, we know that uh, the attacker from Friday travelled uh, in Europe and um, talked of the influence of Europe. So I wanted to understand better um, the the status of uh, right-wing extremism and ideologies in Europe in particular and I wondered if you could help us understand where we're at in terms of um, that type of ideology and its grow, growth over in Europe. I mean it's right-wing uh, extremism uh, covers a spectrum of ideas and there are lots of elements which uh, um, in, are in tension with each other. I mean we've seen this um, with uh, 
20th century um, socialism and Marxism that you can have uh, people who broadly claim um, to be on the left or the far left, but they have um, quite opposing views. The far right is the same sort of confusion. Uh, there are common themes. Uh, we talk loosely about people being uh, fascists or neo-fascists, uh, a, a belief in um, uh, a system of government that controls people's lives and, and um, forces them to do what people believe to be the right thing or brings about the right result, that invariably uh, ends up being discriminatory with some people regarded as being the right people and some people regarded as the wrong people. In the most extreme form of this we saw with National Socialism, the German Nazis in the middle of last century, uh, where uh, they uh, tried to eliminate people they didn't like, um, homosexuals, gypsies, Jews, and of course we, we know that story, although um, a generation in Europe has forgotten it to some extent, uh, and neo-Nazi extremism is, is a, is a live uh, prevalent threat across Europe today. There are some other variations. In France, there's particular kinds of right-wing extremism. Um, some of this uh, arguably manifests in the in the Yellow Jacket movement protest we're seeing. Not all the Yellow Jackets necessarily are right-wing extremists, um, but uh, in amongst uh, that confusion and that opportunity for, for violence, we do have right-wing extremist elements. We understand that the government involved in uh, the massacre, or allegedly involved in the massacre on Friday in Christchurch, spent time in France. And some elements of uh, material he's posted, including the manifesto, suggest uh, possible links with uh, French right-wing extremism. Of course, in France, we have a, a major political party, a little bit like Pauline Hanson's party in Australia, uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, National Front movement, um, remains, of course, a minority phenomenon, but still a very significant minority. and polls much better than anyone feels comfortable with. We have governments in Europe at the moment that have moved in a, in a far-right direction, so Viktor Orban's government in, uh, in Hungary. Uh, we have um, a very strong right-wing presence in government in, in Austria. Uh, we know, of course, that um, Macron won in France, but there was a worry that he may have stumbled, that we may have had a, a more far-right government in France. And, of course, you know, perhaps the example that we're most familiar with uh, and it's a confusing example. Donald Trump uh, plays to a base that has elements of the far right, but he denies that he's encouraging and or inciting them. But we had at least 50 deaths, it's thought, last year in America due to uh, terror incidents, and all of those, or at least the vast majority, were linked with far right extremism. Think of things like the Pittsburgh uh, synagogue shooting. The, sh the shooter claimed to be unhappy with Donald Trump because he wasn't going far enough. And yet you get a sense that um, uh, the outrageous language that Donald Trump has used against everyone he doesn't like, uh, Muslims, Mexicans, immigrants, um, liberals, uh, the press, uh, he often incites his base to attack these people. That's really um, fanning the fire of the far-right extremism, whatever Donald Trump's own personal ideology and and he, he appears to be more pragmatic and self-serving and narcissistic than he does a, a deep thinker. Uh, suffice to say, there's real concern that right-wing extremism is a rising force across the Northern Hemisphere. Yes, and um, let's pick up on some of the those issues that you've raised. I recall that uh, in Poland, for example, we've seen a rise of a quite conservative government over there, and there was a really large, uh, almost 60,000 
march or protest in Warsaw in around 2016, which was one of the biggest gathering of far-right um, ideologues in a long time. Um, I wonder whether that has been occurring in similar scales or is that um, more of a one-off? No, that's part of a, a general um, uh, shift, a general uh, push. Uh, the far-right extremism has been a, a, a presence in Europe, of course, um, throughout much of the 20th century and into the 21st century, so not only National Socialism of Germany, but um, fascism uh, in Spain and uh, in Italy. Uh, and it never really went away. It gets sort of come in waves. Um, but after the collapse of the Cold uh, War, uh, and particularly as Europe experienced um, cycles of economic problems, youth unemployment, um, there's been a resurgence of the far right. And what we're seeing in Poland, unfortunately, but just a one-off, it would be worrying, but um, not nearly as worrying as it is now because it's part of a, a, a broader movement. Um, we've got both political movements and, and far right uh, elements taking government in some cases. We've got underground or at least um, semi-underground movements like Golden Dawn in Greece and uh, pretty much across the span of Europe we've got manifestations of far right extremism. Yes, and you mentioned there America and Donald Trump and his um, real influence, strong influence in kind of garnering this um, support around issues that are quite uh, centred around racism, particularly around Islamophobia. And, of course, we saw, um, you know, towards the beginning of the Trump presidency, the ban on Muslims, um, which clearly was one of the most uh, blunt kind of political attacks on the Muslim community. But also we saw with Charlottesville and the violence there, um, Donald Trump looking to really deflect um, kind of denouncing the, the white supremacists who were there and, and had greatly um, racist and anti-Semitic views and was really kind of putting this down to or calling them protesters and even over the weekend calling this particular attack in Christchurch, you know, part of a very fringe um, movement. It was He was suggesting it was, you know, just really a small group of individuals who are behind this type of um, behaviour and violence. Um, it, does that really, that kind of lack of leadership, I guess, um, tend to fuel the the kind of views and also actions of people who might already be predisposed to them? It tends to give them a green light, a sense of license. They're not going to be held to account. In fact, they'll be applauded. And Donald Trump, although he doesn't uh, articulate any sort of coherent far-right vision, it's a very confusing political vision, he does um, incite this language of hatred and, and call for action and anger. Uh, at his rallies, he regularly um, calls out to members of the press filming him, recording him, um, telling his base, look, these are the enemy, the enemy of the people, um, that we should, you know, at some stage somebody's got to attack these guys. He, he comes very close or actually does call out for attacks um, in, a, in a cryptic sort of way. Uh, he... Uh, lords people who um, take outrageous positions. He uh, certainly demonises um, uh, uh, anyone in society who doesn't fit with his vision, particularly minorities. Uh, he has a very xenophobic view, um, and so banning of Muslims from a number of countries and migration, um, this uh, fixation on the Mexican border and the threat of um, immigrants coming across the border all of this feeds the far right, even if he's not articulating a far right philosophy. He's basically saying, 
um, I'm the president, I'm saying this is okay. So if I'm the president and saying this is okay, then you know, you go ahead, go ahead and do what needs to be done. Yes, and so you know, we're not really seeing a great deal of um, leadership on on that front in uh, America. Of course, we saw over the weekend there were other leaders like Jacinda Ardern and even Scott Morrison who were using strong rhetoric to condone um, this attack and the violence, this type of right wing extreme violence. Um, but I was really surprised to read in your piece on the conversation um, that. In fact, there have been a range of um, attacks happening across Europe as well as America, um, in particular focused on Muslims and mosques. And you gave an example um, of 2017 whereby you said it's calculated that there were 950 attacks on Muslims and mosques in Germany alone. Now, obviously Germany um, under Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, was greatly progressive when uh, we saw the the Syrians um, really being dispossessed and um, under basically in a war zone and needing to find um, shelter and security. And, of course, Germany was very much um, opening up their arms out to um, Muslims of a ra- from a range of different countries. And we've seen clearly there must have been some sort of social backlash um, involved. What is the link between immigration and um, extreme right ideology? That's a really good question, Amy. Um, as I said, the, the, the far-right um, ideology, if you can um, find any common threads, one is is this uh, idea of a powerful state, powerful leaders, strong men, uh, it's very masculine, um, who make society run as it should, make it proper. But that's always discriminatory. It's discriminatory. So in, in the case of National Socialism, we've had this idea of the Aryan white race, white supremacy is a common theme. It's not it's not equal across all elements of the far right, but you do have this um, very um, racist and xenophobic and discriminatory uh, element running through. We saw this with elements of um, uh, the alleged government in, in Christchurch, of course. And uh, in recent years, there's been a targeting on immigration, and particularly people coming seeking asylum, and a playing up of fear and anxiety about this. Uh, so Angela Merkel quite rightly um, took a very strong stance and argued very rationally that actually Germany's got an ageing population, a shrinking population. It stands to benefit from highly motivated, uh, often quite well-educated younger people who are keen to make a new home. It's for Germany's benefit. And, of course, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a humane thing to do for people seeking asylum. So completely rational. Um, but Germany's also home to um, not just underground and semi-underground right-wing movements, but a party alternative for Deutschland, uh, which has done very strongly in parts of Germany, particularly uh, parts that were under uh, the former East German um, regime, uh, where there's still uh, lots of anxiety and social division and um, clearly some, some raw nerves. Uh, and it plays particularly upon this threat. And one of the things about far-right movements in general is they tend to have a conspiratorial worldview. They believe in conspiracies. They believe that they, they their side are the victims of some vast conspiracy and, and the believe they have to rise up and fight back. And the conspirators historically have been Jews. More recently, they had Muslims. Um, they tend to add foreigners and outsiders. Um, one of the persons who's, um, uh, um, who's regularly been demonized is George Soros, who's Hungarian by birth and uh, Jewish. Um, he's seen as part of this because he's a, he's a wealthy, uh, not just billionaire, but somebody who's 
tried to support democratic movements. He's seen as, a, as an evil conspirator. Um, and alternative for Deutschland has, has grown strong in, in the wake of Europe's refugee asylum seeker crisis. Of course, um, uh, there are a lot of people coming not just out of Syria, but across the Mediterranean, um, often off the Libyan coast and often through uh, Italy into Europe. And so there are some genuine challenges there and some genuine anxieties. And uh, the far right has fed on this anxiety because it is a, a movement of victimhood and a movement of conspiracy. Indeed. Um, and you talk there about the, the German experience and um, there seems to be a thread here, a common thread, which is that there's a bit of a conflation of religion and ethnicity and a real focus on blood um, and the use of that terminology and, um, you know, talking about European blood versus other. Um, and I put that in a big group of other. Um, and we saw that also from the attacker at Christchurch is this focus on um, ethnicity as as much as religion. And of course, um, you know, not every Muslim is from another country. There was, um, even in, in the Christchurch experience, if you watch 60 Minutes, there was an a Anglo-Saxon male from Britain who had converted to um, Islam. So it is a, a diverse group of people in and of itself. What is, um, why is there this kind of focus on uh, or conflation of um, race and religion? It, it comes back to the sense of insecurity and, uh, and identity politics, but it's a very um, juvenile identity politics that, as I said, it's, a, it's based on a sense of victimhood and based on the sense that um, our people, our race, our blood is, is under attack. Sometimes the religious elements put so. Um, the Norwegian terrorist in 2011, Breivik, um, who was referenced to Friday, uh, talks about Christendom, even though there's not really real religion in his ideology. National Socialism also spoke about Christianity, but in a very inconsistent way. So there's a conflation of the true people, um, and uh, of course in German uh, nationalism, there's, there's this idea of blood and blood descent and purity of blood. Um, it, it goes into this kind of very primordial um, elements that fuel racism and xenophobia, uh, but it's, it's reinforced into a into a political vision and sort of justified it. So we're not being cruel, we're just doing what we have to do to protect our people. And often it's put in terms of saying, if those other people of the Jews stay in Israel, they're not a problem. Um, but if they come here, then they're a problem. If the Muslims stay where they are, they're not a problem. If they come to Europe, come to uh, New Zealand, Australia, then they're a problem. That's that's this um, sort of rationalising of what's just an innate, deep um, prejudice. Yes, and so if we bring things back to Australia, which has been the focus of a lot of people over the weekend, um, given that this man was born in Australia, he lived the majority of his life here, at least his um, teens and 20s, he then travelled overseas and was based in Dunedin at different points in the last couple of years. But a lot of people have been reflecting on Australia's role, particularly our politicians and our media and the way that people talk about and highlight the different uh, viewpoints that are quite polarising, particularly as you've referenced One Nation, for example, um, whereby, where Senator Fraser Anning originated, um, who's now an, an independent. He um, moved to the Bob Catter party before being expelled because of his uh, maiden speech, which was obviously had many um, racist elements in 
up as part of it and even at the time of that speech we saw various uh, conservative politicians congratulating uh, Fraser Anning on that speech and obviously he's been one of the core focuses over the weekend for a range of reasons but you highlight even in in the title of your piece that um, a toxic political environment that allows hate to flourish is dangerous what do you when you're reflecting upon Australia's political environment what kind of elements would you perceive to be most contributory to creating um, an environment of hate where it you know right-wing extreme views might be um, validated and allowed to flourish Australia has a very um, uh, complex and paradoxical makeup um, we began, um, if not by intention, but by effect, um, settling into a country where people were already settled, where there was an ancient civilization, and then engaging in periodic massacres, uh, and then denying that we'd ever done this and that, that, that there really was a settled civilization. In the 20th century, we moved to a white Australia position, which, of course, has a very racist element. We were forced to shift away from it after the Second World War, and we've of all countries in the world being one of the most successful with with immigration and building a multicultural society. Sad to say, the beginning of this century, um, the time of the 2001 elections, as I outlined in that essay, uh, when John Howard faced the unwinnable election, he embraced Pauline Hanson's right-wing ideas and tried to co-opt them and and, and to grab that base. Coincidentally, we had the 9-11 attacks in the US before the arrival of the um, MV Tampa with asylum seekers. Howard went on to win that um, uh, election, but at a great price. It, uh, it's coloured our politics ever since, and it's affected uh, not just the Liberal Party, but the Labor Party in terms of policy on asylum seekers arriving by boat, offshore processing, boat turnbacks, and, and now indefinite detention in Manus and Nauru. And in the process of that, in justifying that, there's been a lot of playing to uh, politics of fear and anxiety, and, and there's been a lot of demonising, uh, not just of asylum seekers, but of, generally of people who are of dark skin who look different who are Muslim. Um, there's been really inflammatory talk about African gangs in, in Melbourne that's been irresponsible and, and really designed for political purposes rather than analysis or trying to be part of a, a realistic response to juvenile crime. And um, the more significant uh, the challenge from this, the more they, they double down. And so it, it's, it is a toxic kind of environment. Perhaps those who are doing this don't realise what they're doing, but it, it, it leaves people who are the victims of this demonisation and who are vulnerable. You know, Muslim women, for example, taking a tram, wearing a headscarf, are vulnerable to those who feel now licensed to speak out and attack them, um, spit, spit at them or, or um, slap them or pull the headscarf off. It's, it's hard to imagine uh, the sense of hurt that causes. And, of course... When the Christchurch massacre occurred, people said, well, this, this is the manifestation of what we've been fearing. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's not come as a surprise to us because we, we've seen this thing building. Yes, and a lot of people perhaps um, didn't take the the views of people like Fraser Anning and Pauline Hanson seriously, at least in some parts of um, perhaps progressive politics, because they're seen as fringe views or part of a minority view, but then they are amplified by different parts of the media who then kind of um, continually reference and debate these uh, different views, very strong, offensive views that can be put forward on, on racism. And of course you reference 
there, the 2001 election, which, um, you know, I remember even when I was watching that, I thought, oh, it's all gone now when we saw the September 11 attacks um, and the, the Tampa issue. You could see where this was going and it did seem like it was quite a significant break from um, the the dominant uh, political views of the time. Um, in terms of how you've seen it build over that time from 2001 to now, 2019, you know, we've seen people like um, the former Minister for Immigration and Border Protection, Peter Dutton, talking about Malcolm Fraser's uh, decision to bring in Lebanese Muslim migrants and and he, you know, labelled that as being a mistake. That's been the subject of a lot of um, condemnation and people have been reminded of that over the weekend and reminding Peter Dutton himself of it. Um, I was very interested in a journal article that you retweeted, which was around the media's framing of um, issues like that and how they often can mirror the framing that uh, the politician uses when they are, um, I guess, highlighting or excluding a minority or singling them out for um, treatment. What is um, your understanding of the way that media can uh, contribute to and elevate some of these uh, more minority views that politicians espouse? Well, you know, part of it comes down to giving people a space and, and challenging them. We've had a lot of really good work in the media um, holding uh, ministers or, or other politicians to account um, Pauline Hanson, uh, Senator Anning, but, but you know, even uh, Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison have been subject to some, some tough uh, cross-examination and questioning, and that's exactly what needs to happen in the media. That's, um, that's uh, right and proper. Uh, but it's the, the problem with consistency, um, I think a lot of people were pleased to see David Kosh and Seven uh, Sunrise yesterday uh, call Pauline Hanson out and ask her to account for her um, responsibility for statements she's been making and, and, and um, the rise of um, far-right hatred. Uh, and on that occasion, he, he did something quite strong and, 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 and productive. But, of course, the question is, why is she given a regular fortnightly slot on Sunrise anyway? Um, so I think the dilemma for um, media, even non-commercial media, is we're all concerned about ratings and we want to be successful. And uh, edgier material... Uh, drives people to listen or, or, or to watch. Um, with social media, of course, there's algorithms that drive our news feeds that do the same sort of thing. Uh, so the challenge is not to be so fixated on getting a, a burst of popularity and attention um, that we allow material that we know is problematic. Um, and that's something that the media constantly wrestles with. There's always going to be attention. I suggest it's easy. Yes, and I just want to draw attention to some of the things that you highlight as being potential parts of the solution to this issue. And um, towards the end of your piece, you raise the issue of hate crimes and the need for standard definitions, robust data collection and a national database. Um, where, are, where is Australia at in terms of moving towards any of those aims? Uh, we're not very far down the road. The police are concerned about these things, and different uh, state police force uh, have uh, officers that, that um, are concerned with hate crimes, but we don't do this in a coordinated fashion, and it's not done um, uh, in a way that takes material the police might see with people that, to say, social workers, uh, people working in women's shelters, uh, youth workers, teachers may see. We need to have a, a better, more rigorous definition of what constitutes 
uh, hate crime incidents and we need to uh, more consistently listen when people report them and we need to record them. One of the, the you get a sense at the moment there's a vast level of under-reporting because people have tried to report hate crimes, they don't find anyone who wants to listen or, or to make any um, um, consistent notation and so they give up and say well there's no point in saying this and so um, that can lead us to the sense that oh well it's not such a big problem um, uh, you know Muslim friends will talk about uh, their experience of, of what they see as an irrational fear of Islam, Islamophobia um, and people turn around and say well where is the evidence? Well the trouble is every time they they speak up and uh, express their concern uh, they've got nowhere to go and nowhere for it to be recorded in a systematic fashion uh, we really do need to track where problems are getting worse geographically. We need to join the dots when it comes to individuals who, you know, somebody who goes on to be a, a lone actor terrorist very often from experience um, might first come to attention with domestic violence and misogyny. Uh, we saw that with the Link Cafe gunman. We've seen it with um, uh, the Nice Bastille Day truck driver with the... Um, Orlando, Florida, Pulse nightclub shooter. It's a, it's a common theme again and again with the Norwegian terrorists of 2011. Uh, all of these people who are looking to be famous for an act of violence, and hence no need to mention their names because they, they don't deserve it. But narcissism often manifests uh, in other forms of um, self-serving violent behaviour that's often domestic violence. If we could just track all of this and join the dots, we might spot individuals who we should be concerned about. We might, might spot... Um, geographical areas, we might spot particular issues, we might spot particular communities, but we, we don't have that data at the moment, so we're flying blind. Yes, and Greg, just finally, uh, before I let you go, I wanted to highlight um, and get your thoughts on the gun lobby in Australia, um, which has been quite vocal in recent times and very active in seeking to influence our politicians and, I guess, water down our um, gun laws, which were really quite very much strengthened um, by John Howard after the Port Arthur massacres. What do you think um, might be the consequence of um, gun lobbyists pushing to have greater access to weapons? Um, we've seen, obviously, that the semi-automatics were used as well as other rifles over the weekend, um, but we've seen some of the gun lobby recently say that um, having these Australian firearm laws at the moment are putting people at risk and that is a common um, refrain in America that one needs to protect oneself. Do you have a, um, any kind of insight into that situation at the moment in Australia and the lobby's influence? Well, you talk about the lobby, it is, it is we're talking about powerful business interests. We've just had um, the owner of Gun City in Christchurch confirm that his store sold, sold four semi-automatic weapons to the gunman and mm. thought to be involved in, in Friday's massacre. Um, and this guy is a, you know, a, a multi-millionaire. He, his store claims to be the biggest gun store in the world. Uh, you know, counterintuitively, who would have thought New Zealand has um, uh, lax gun laws that are comparable to America's lax gun laws? Um, it's not something that we saw coming, um, but it, it, does, it does speak to the danger. Jacinta Ardern, uh, New Zealand Prime Minister, has quite rightly come on the front foot and said that she wants to address this. Uh, to address this properly, though, will not, will not only mean that no more will military assault rifles be sold, but those that are in circulation will be drawn back. And we need to... I, I'm not overly anxious that, that the gun lobby is going to get too far in Australia, but we need to recognise that there's a lot of powerful... Um, corporate interest in, in trying to make a profit. It, it's, the, the business is very profitable in America um, where there are more lit 
actually more guns than people. Uh, and in New Zealand, there could be as many as um, uh, one gun for every three or four Kiwis. Uh, so the the, the 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 profit motive is a powerful motive, and uh, unless we're uh, alert to this and call it out, then um, it, it can eat into politics. I think in Australia we we probably are safe. I think in a in a, a an old sort of way, the Christchurch massacre is a timely reminder and a warning. Um, but it's going to be a very tough uh, battle in New Zealand to get the sort of reform that's going to be effective. Yes, exactly. And as we saw anecdotally, there was a rise in people buying guns in New Zealand. Uh, that was self-reported by gun store owners and media who were covering it. Um, Greg, it's been wonderful to speak with you and very, very illuminating. And I very much appreciate your time today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Amy. I've been speaking with Professor Greg Barton, Chair in Global Islamic Politics at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin University. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. historian Carolyn Rasmussen and she's written a most wonderful book The Blackburns Private Lives Public Ambitions it's a joint biography of two very important figures in Australian political life um, and it's uh, of course socialist barrister Morris Blackburn and uh, Doris Hordern that was her maiden name and of course when she married uh, Morris she was known as Doris Blackburn and both were members of parliament different parliaments at various points in their careers but that was not the, that was certainly not it at all. Um, they were engaged in a range of other political activities and activism across their lives. So I'm really delighted now to welcome in the studio Carolyn Rasmussen. Hi there, Carolyn. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Now, this book is, well, it's beautiful <laughs> in terms of the physical substance that I was referring to. It's quite weighty. Um, and when I received it, I thought, wow, they've paid appropriate respect physically to the words that are in this book, because really this is a, such a extensive history and biography of two very important figures who probably aren't necessarily understood in the comprehensive way of which you've laid out their lives and their contributions to public life. In terms of your career as a historian, you, I know yourself, have focused on the labour movement. How did you move into knowing about and getting to know these two great characters of Australian life? Oh, well, I grew up in the uh, in Coburg, which uh, the electorate of Burke, as it was called originally, was covered by them. So the Blackburns were much admired in my family. Uh, they, they were names that I already knew. Uh, Coburg also has a particularly interesting political history in independent labour, uh, an idea that the pure socialist labour was more important than the kind of Tammany Hall sort of labour politics um, of the inner city. And when I went back to university as a postgraduate student, the, the particular characteristics of the area I grew up in seemed tailor-made for me to write about. And so actually the first thing I wrote was a, a, my master's, uh, my honours thesis is a, a biography of a state representative for Coburg, Charlie Mutton, who had been who had defied 
the party and been an independent Labor from 1940 through until he was readmitted to the party. So the Blackburns were known to me uh, as soon as I started work on this, both, but both of them. But of course, as a teenager in the 1950s and 60s, I knew about Doris anyway. And so she was something of a a proto-feminist and you know, I, I saw her as the sort of person that I wanted to grow up to be like, from mm. quite well, as even as a teenager. So when I found them in my work everywhere, uh, it was obvious. I found that um, I went to Tasmania to stay with their daughter, who had all the papers down there. And once I started working on the papers, I was completely hooked. Mm. There was going to be no escape for me in the long run. <laughs> um, few people perhaps know firsthand the wonder of looking through the personal papers of big, important figures of history, yeah. and I can't even imagine what it would have been like. But for you, what was the type of wonder or um, excitement that you felt when you were looking through the papers of Doris and Morris? Oh, it was it was an extraordinary sensation of. Of, of looking into people's lives. But the the most absolutely engaging aspect of this was their courtship letters. They wrote to each other for something like 18 months before they got married, uh, sometimes twice, sometimes three times a day, discussing their how much they loved each other, how much they missed each other, their future plans, but also all of their political activities were also part of this conversation. The only deeply frustrating thing about these letters is that the dreaded sentence, I will see you tonight, dear, <laughs> which is the Friday letter. Yes. And so freak, or I'll tell you all about it when I see you on the weekend. <laughs> Perhaps those uh, tantalising moments were part of what kept me completely engaged. I needed to know what was going on on the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, but there was another... I was only in my 20s. Um, There was something slightly, uh, should I really be reading these? They were so incredibly personal. But that sort of makes it feel like, yeah, that's just completely engaging. And all of the other documents as well. There's something quite transporting. You're taken back into time. I mean, it's about handwriting. It's about the feel of the paper. It's about the look of the typefaces. It's all those things. Yes. And you highlight, you know, some scribbles and notes in margins of different papers. It really does add a lot of richness and it's not only what's put in, but what's left out. Yes. So many different things that are revealing in primary documents. I do want to just quickly read out some brief quotes from those love letters because they are quite inspiring. I wish that people today would (laughs) do this, but I don't think it's likely. Well, maybe in their wedding vows, but not in a letter or a text message. But this is from Morris. He writes, I love you, Doris. I think I worship you. You embody for me all that is good. You are the moon which is drawing up the currents of my being. It is high tide with me now. I mean, that is so poetic. (laughs) And then just so it's fair, um, I'll just put a little bit from Doris who quotes poetry and she also was very interested in literature and poetry herself. She 
talks about dear boy never never dream for a moment of putting aside the work that lies before you and me and all of us you could not do it we both know that you could not shut your eyes to suffering and depression any more than i could poverty work trouble sorrow if they are to be our lot oh man i can face them with my hand in yours i can face them smiling yeah (laughs) i feel like it almost encapsulates their outlook or their philosophy yeah it was it was a they was they were political soulmates as yeah. well as, you know, madly, crazily in love. I think, um, I mean, they're only the same age as my grandparents, so they were not that distant to me. But I think one of the things that also struck me was how incredibly modern they were in their responses to each other. You know, there mm. are episodes where you can see that they... Dis- I think at one point she says rather firmly, I think we should spend a little bit more time reading... <laughs> Um, <laughs> so you get the sense that things are getting a little out of hand from yeah. time to time. Um, so yeah, they they love being with each other, and they they can't they can't bear being apart. Yes, and you talk about books and their love of reading. Yes, and you also highlight the differences. And similarities in education, of course. Morris had greater access to higher education than Doris did. But in terms of the books that they were exposed to, there was one particular bookstore that seemed to be a place of congregation for many in Melbourne, uh, which I had never heard of. I'd really love to know more about the Book Lovers Library in Collins Street, Melbourne, which fascinatingly was run by Elsie Champion, who was related to Vita Goldstein. Yes, she's a sister of Vita Goldstein, yes. What was that bookstore, the Book Lovers Library, like? The Book Lovers Library was... It was a library which uh, was a circulating library. People came and because uh, Elsie Champion, her husband, Henry Hyde Champion, he was an English socialist who'd come to Australia and had a significant role in the... Melbourne, Melbourne before the war was just fizzing with ideas, with books, with people, all different sorts of... Uh, forms of socialism and progressive ideas and that bookshop became the place where everybody came to talk. It was quite close to the Women Political Association coffee rooms which where you could take coffee and so people went there to get their their magazines, their their latest literature, they were importing um, books particularly from the United States but also pamphlets, leaflets magazines you know and everybody who was interested in progressive ideas bumped into each other and it was also a place of art and literature and music mm. so it was the art people who were the literati who were there as well the poets and the uh, and the writers of more creative writers i think yes and yeah and elsie champion was a very outgoing and charming woman who People love to, to be there. Mm. And they always employed someone to help people choose their books. Yes, and I believe Doris was employed there? Yes, yes. Yes. She was. It's fascinating all the interconnections between these key people in history because you say that Elsie was very charming and, of, of course, Vita has been known, Vita Goldstein, to yeah. be very, very charming yes. and commanding a yes. presence. Um, and then we see Doris's 
involvement with Vita yes. Goldstein in her many campaigns, but particularly looking at the campaign for Kuyong, the federal yes. seat of Kuyong, whereby she was um, a co-campaign secretary with her former teacher, Selena Hooper, who was such an important influence on her. Yes, she was. In terms of that involvement with Vita Goldstein, not only in her campaigns, but the interconnected areas like the Woman Voter newspaper, which she was really important and played a key role in as well. How did that influence Doris's trajectory and life, being exposed to such strong feminists who were, you know, very much there to protect women's rights and encourage women to to grasp the vote that they had been granted finally? Oh, it was a perfect political apprenticeship. Doris, from obviously from quite an early age, had a restless sense that things needed to be improved for women. I mean, her mother was also a, 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 a quite a, a feisty. Uh, she was a very she was active in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and had very strong views about the rights of women too. But Doris, working on that campaign for Kuyong, which proved to be the one where the media closed ranks against her most comprehensively, which was, of course, a sign of just how dangerous they suddenly considered she'd become. Mm. Uh, I mean, those uh, people she was working with, those older women who were campaign um, veterans, getting the publications out, getting everybody organised, speaking or not speaking, depending, making sure everything was working, and just... uh, going out on the streets herself and selling the woman voter and, and feeling the, the, the enthusiasm and support as well as the hostility. I mean, she just honed her skills, I think, and her, her beliefs in what kind of feminist she wanted to be. By the end of it, I think she understood that she didn't actually wish to be exclusively, um, as Vita Goldstein did, a woman's party. Um, but that didn't matter very much at that point. But she felt that the attempt to appeal just to women, I think she learnt quite early, was part of the failure of voters' campaign. Um, she couldn't disconnect the middle-class women from the middle-class party. Yes. Um, well, Avita, part of her aim was to become the first female elected to... Uh, the federal parliament Mm. and she tried in both the senate and the house of representatives multiple times it is really interesting to me then that doris blackburn becomes the second woman ever elected to the house of representatives federally and of course enid lyons being the first in the lower house and dorothy tangney to be the first in the senate and they were both part of major parties, those two women. So I was particularly interested that uh, we saw Doris not be tied to a major party but instead be an independent Labor candidate. Could you share what that really means and why she put herself in that camp? Well, uh, I mean, I think I I do suggest that she is, in fact, the realisation of Vita's dream and it took a long time for that to happen. She's independent largely because the Labor Party had moved so far to the right in the course of the 1930s. Uh, She and Morris both uh, have a very international focus. Doris, the the, the strongest theme in Doris's life up until she goes to Parliament is very much her commitment to peace and work for peace uh, as a person who was very strongly committed to collective security as the best way to avoid the Second World War. 
She was therefore out of sympathy with the Labor Party of that time and that was reinforced by the fact that they've moved into the Coburg area which is in itself uh, a very uh, well-organised and strongly ideologically focused independent Labor. In fact, they see themselves as the the pure Labor. So she has... She's, she's there in an area which is more socialist left, as we would call it now. Yes. And so she goes to Parliament as an independent member because the organisation which had been supporting Morris and Charlie Mutton is a strong political organisation and that's really the secret of her getting into Parliament against mm. the sta- sitting Labor, against this sort of... It's a blue-ribbon Labor seat. Um, and that's why she's independent. But I think... She's able to stand like that courageously alone and walk that what is a lonely path because of what she learned back there with Vita Goldstein. She, she learned to be tough mm. and principled. And then, of course, she and Morris both are very committed to what matters are the principles. You don't compromise. You, don't, you, you, you need to be strategic, but there is always some point where... You do what you think is right and you work for the policies that you think matter, even if that means, as in Parliament with the woman of rocket range, as they say, she's a lone woman yeah. against the rocket range. She so passionately believed that that was the wrong thing to do um, that she would put that ahead of staying in office or any number of other things. I think, mm-hmm. I think that, that capacity to be a, a strong, lone political person um, and, and demonstrate. And she really, really did want to demonstrate to women that if you stand up straight and strong, you can... She's, she's an optimist. Yes, and they both, Morris and Doris, seem like optimists and at times idealists. Idealists, yes. yeah. And they... But just to be... I think, yeah. I think it's important that the optimism as well as the idealism because, mm. you know, she, she in particular just never gave up she always found something to do that she thought would make a difference Uh, i think blackburn became sick and a little despondent in the end but i don't think doris ever did Mm. it's really interesting that couple um, approach to big principal issues because uh, when Morris was in the state parliament um, he had won a by-election to get his seat and then the conscription campaigns came around in the in World War One, which was extremely divisive at times violent it was really a huge moment in Australian history and there were two referendum campaigns or votes and the second vote was in December 1917 and uh, his election campaign and the election was in the November the, the month preceding so it all kind of culminated but he was actually one of many figures including Archbishop Mannix who was not for conscription they were very strongly anti-conscription could you share a bit about Morris's involvement in the anti-conscription campaigns yes M- Morris um found himself, uh, he personally felt very strongly that no person should be conscripted to take another person's life. Uh, he, he also believed very strongly that the British, if he had to choose between British culture and German culture, he, he felt that British culture was 
the rule of law was stronger and in particular it was less um he, he was very concerned that everybody have freedom of religion freedom of thought so that meant that he very reluctantly supported the british case in the war but when conscription was advocated he was activated to work against that uh he had a um his eloquence his passion he was so um he was everywhere and he really was something of a figurehead of the campaign in victoria but he also travelled to south australia and various places and he brought upon himself a great deal of hostility and anger partly because he was actually the member for one of the seats that had the highest yes vote in australia essendon for for conscription mm. so here we have a member who's campaigning against it so as you can see the passions are running very high um he was also very concerned that germans not be discriminated against and his stands in in um support of the lutheran schools and so on was also seen as an act of treachery support for the enemy um treasonous in fact and he wasn't bothered by any of that he he really stood up very straight as of course most people on that side did mm. but his position was such that he lost his seat in parliament and that was a kind of a very big price to pay in terms of his personal career and his personal life but he he accepted that and he was able to stand tall and strong like that because Doris was was with him 100% of the way um she she was completely with him on that score and and she was always standing beside him on those matters of principle Morris really put his colors very closely around socialism and yes. said that um he believed in socialist ideals and the system and as you write um he was fully persuaded that only socialism could stop the war quote by removing the causes of war and that was around world war 1 yes. so we were talking about idealism then that's kind of <laughs> one example yes. so in terms of that really strong political perspective and viewpoint how did that impact upon his career or life as a barrister well his life as a barrister hadn't been going particularly well before the war because as a known socialist uh, there are a range of people who wouldn't give briefs to a socialist barrister anyway uh, he he didn't he didn't really he his the most important work he did was he worked with Silvio Cassin on the consolidation of the Victorian statutes and that's of course what gave him an incredible insight into how the, the appropriate formulation of good law which is something he cared about a great deal that the, the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of good legislation really excited him um but after this uh, his role in the conscription campaigns it was clear that as a barrister he had no future at all and that is when in 1919 not long after he lost the election he uh handed in his his barrister's certificate so to speak and set himself up as a solicitor Morris Blackburn and Company which in 1919 which is exactly 100 years ago uh in association with another known uh legal political figure in Victorian history which is Bill Slater Bill Slater at that stage wasn't fully qualified and he was actually a member of parliament already Mm. he'd been elected as a so it starts out he starts out with Bill Slater 
um, but Bill Slater, of course, leaves in the mid-20s to set up his own law firm. Yes. Uh, and as a solicitor, it was a law firm specifically devoted to the interests of the trade union movement and to those who couldn't, would not ordinarily be able to afford legal representation. And it, it was a nice um, symbiosis, when he was back into Parliament, between supporting law that would, in particular, workers' compensation law and a legal firm which would then put that sort of law into practice and support people um, working under that law. But the income to the law firm was mostly provided by the, by the big unions whose cases he advised on once they went to the arbitration court. Yes, and you highlight his commitment to the trade union movement and trying to empower unionists to be able to advocate for themselves in that arbitration system. I was particularly interested in this idea that not only was he an activist, but he saw himself as an educator and that giving people knowledge really was a leveller in a way and gave others' power to be able to change things and also advocate for themselves. Yes, he, he was a very, very... Uh, the, the power of education, he's, he saw himself as an educator very much. In fact, so did Doris. This mm. Education would unlock the potential of, of ordinary people and he was actually very successful at it. I, I interviewed, when I was talking to people in the, of the Coburg branch of the ALP who'd known him personally... Several of them were very quick to tell me when they would invite him out to speak often and explain issues and, and, and talk about all sorts of things to do with the labour movement. Um, and they said, you know, when Morris came and talked, you, you went away and you thought about it for days. There was mm. this feeling that he made, he made things clear. People felt they understood better when they'd listened to Blackburn explain things. so And he was very in demand. And actually, you probably notice in the book, in Parliament as well, as one of the very small number of people with legal expertise sitting in Parliament, the, the other members of Parliament found Blackburn's expositions on the law extremely helpful. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I was interested that one of his early passions was constitutional law, which is, <laughs> it doesn't really get people that particularly excited normally. No, it doesn't, but he could make it interesting. Yeah, I would believe that. And also, interestingly, there's that link between Morris and Doris in the sense that she informally studied psychology and educational theories and um, that she really thought that it was so important to ensure that children, all children, had the value of education at a really early age. And also, when I was Googling and looking her up, I saw that a preschool is even named after her. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing, really, to see her influence that still pervades. Oh, absolutely. And I think she belongs to that that strand of feminism that it's a marriage of feminism and her peace commitment, a commitment to peace, uh, which sees that the next generation is the hope. She's very very engaged with the the new education movement Mm. in between the wars with progressive education and the idea that there was a form of non-competitive schooling that would allow children to grow up to be natural peacemakers rather than natural warmongers and that if we could if we could get the children young enough 
They would grow up to be anti-militaristic. I mean, that's the general idea. And preschool, she was a trained teacher, uh, a trained yes. primary school teacher, uh, but preschool children were her special passion. Apparently she had a special affinity. They just adored her. And mm. that kindergarten was probably the thing that gave her most pleasure in life overall, I think. Uh, it was set up in the war years up near her house in Kernans Hill, Pascovale. Yeah. And it's still very much uh, alive. And it, um, yeah, and people know who she is, who yes. she was. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and, well, it's great that this book adds to that understanding. There is also now a building in Canberra named for her as well. Really? Which building is the, that? The, the new uh, Social Security, Social Services building that yeah. was opened in 2013, I think, has been very appropriately named the Doris Blackburn building. That's wonderful. One other element of Doris's career I wanted to touch on was uh, her advocacy which you mentioned before around the Woomera rocket testing range that she really jumped on when she heard of its development and the proposal and so when she entered federal parliament as the second ever female member of the House of Representatives, she focused a lot of her attention on that issue in her maiden speech. Could you share a bit about what made her maiden speech so special at the time? Well, Doris, as a person whose primary motivating force was actually the desire to end war or to prevent war and to produce friendly relations between all nations... But she had a long... Because um, of their involvement with Fitzroy, Doris had been engaged with the Indigenous population of Melbourne for a long time. And the conditions of Aboriginal people was a strong strand in all of the organisations she was involved with. So when she found herself in Parliament and realised that the proposal to test rockets, guided missiles in Woomera, which was an area of Central Desert... Aboriginal people. That was just seemed to be the issue that was tailor-made to define the rest of her life in a way, I think. She's a very fine speaker. She does a lot of research. She's very passionate. Uh, and so she, she got up in Parliament to challenge this was just going to slip through. Had Doris not been in the House of Representatives at that point in time, I, it's interesting, I, it's, she was... The, she was able to be a spokesperson in a very loud space um, not that there wasn't agitation elsewhere but mm-hmm. Doris became Doris became the figurehead but her eloquence was quite extraordinary um, she she demonstrated a, a, a capacity for a sort of down-to-earth effective persuasive way of speaking although of course she didn't change anything by the way she spoke she brought the issue to to the front. And I, I think probably these things take a long time to have an effect. But what she demonstrated was that you, you could still make a difference, even if there's only you sitting as an independent member, sitting on the cross benches. And the message was out there in the media because mm. the second woman in Parliament was speaking about this issue. Um, and I, I think that was quite inspirational, really. That that is a great speech. That's why they put it. Well, it's actually it's a two part speech. <laughs> and why did they break it up over two different parts? Oh, some of it's just to do with parliamentary procedures and yeah. sitting days, and some of it is was a sort of an attempt to make it go away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a strategy. Uh, which she, yes, which she didn't 
she managed to avoid that happening. Mm. But some of it is just the procedural matters. You mentioned the Indigenous Australians. She set up the Aborigines Advancement League and really focused a lot of her attention on the advancement of Australia's first peoples. Yes. Was that something that was particularly rare or noticeable in that period that she started it? There's a very strong development happening. I mean, she tries to encourage Pastor Doug Nichols to actually stand for Parliament. There is um, a, a groundswell of support for Indigenous people uh, right across the left of politics in Australia, particularly in um, New South Wales, Victoria and, and South Australia. The problem, the problem is this is the Cold War mm. setting in and because the left is so involved in issues to do with Aborigines, everything gets muddled up. But the idea that uh, in Victoria uh, they, they need to to get them off these reserves. I mean, um, it's not that Aborigines didn't have the vote here in Victoria. They did. but So she's part of a group. There is a mm. series of them. And um, she and it's, it's Gordon Bryant, they, they feel that the two of them, there is this feeling that there's a need for a new organisation. There's a group of them that should advocate but also support. So there's not just an advocacy body originally. One of her other favourite activities is making jam. And Doug Nichols had set up a hostel for Aboriginal girls coming to the city to work in Northcote. And Doris is very, very involved in fundraising for for that project. Um, and all of those things all come together with the idea that we need a body which can advocate effectively and efficiently on behalf of Indigenous people. And, of course, within a short space of time, it's, there's the federal body formed. Mm. And this is all the beginning of the grassroots organising itself into um, a series of uh, forces moving together, which will ultimately lead to the 1967 referendum and the removal of all sorts of disabilities that Indigenous people were subject to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the listeners, we're placing this in 1957, which is when she founded the yeah. Aborigines But she'd been working on that sort of thing for... Many years. years before yeah. that, yeah. And she entered Parliament in the late 40s. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so was... 46 a, to 49. Mm, mm. Yeah. And why did she lose her seat? Why was it so short-lived? <laughs> <laughs> well... Of course, she's basically Labor. Yes. And there's a huge tsunami against the Chifley government. So to some mm. extent, she swept aside with the sort of movement against the Labor Party. Um, the secondly, the, the resonance of the independent Labor tag had lessened. Well, there was a redistribution of the seat so that whereas she'd represented all working-class areas in Burke, Coburg and Brunswick, when they split Burke into two, Burke and Wills spelt differently, the other Burke. Yes. Uh, she chose to stand for Wills, which was Coburg, where she lived, but that electorate had been shifted and it was taking in part of Essendon, which was very Liberal voting. Mm. And this time around, the Liberals didn't second preference her to the same extent. So she, she did quite well, but yeah. the... the political landscape had changed. Personally, I think the openness to women was... I think the 50s were closing in. It was a, it was a more conservative yeah. era. Exactly. Well, if we 
remember that World War Two it ended and that was a great period of yes. women taking up, up leadership roles and it certainly opened things up for women and then as you say it started to, to close back up again. Yes, it was. It was closing back up, I yeah. think. Yeah. So just finally, Carolyn, it's been so wonderful speaking oh, with you. you. Yeah. I just wanted to reflect, as you have done in this book, what would you, if you had to say, were their biggest contributions or most, even if they weren't the biggest, perhaps the most influential over time? Because as you say, some things that they did many, many years ago have really taken a while to come to fruition or influence others during history. Were there any particular issues that you think Morris and or Doris really played a pivotal role in? I think Morris in particular is st- still remains within the Labor pantheon, if you like. Um, John Curtin, with whom he did not get on particularly well, said that he set a standard that all the rest of us would be better to live by. I mean, I think that idea of the intellectual who also um, introduced a lot of practical uh, legislation and assistance. I think that balance, and the man who was always stayed true to principle. Sometimes that wasn't always to the best of the party, but um, I think there is this view that you a, a good political party needs a Morris Blackburn, an idealist, a purist. Um, as for Doris, I think her contribution was just being there. Mm. You know, if you go back, and I mean that's what I think her life is an example of how. A woman who set herself to do whatever she could to make the world a little better and a little more peaceful, and she just didn't give up. Uh, Wherever she could see some change she could make, Uh, she was an advocate, she was an educator, and I think at the grassroots level she was very influential. That's harder to catch in the public in a book, I think, but it's it's the grassroots Doris who then stood up there in Parliament and said, you see? We can do this. We can be here. It's such a great example and no wonder you looked up to her. I yeah. C- I can see why, yeah. And she's a real reference point and role model for others. Absolutely. I should also say that I think there's a role model for the current media because mm. the way that uh, Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangi and Doris Blackburn are treated in the media when they're in Parliament is respectful and appropriate. Um, I mean, and that says something about slightly different atmospherics, Mm. I think. Yes, it is really interesting to look back on Trove at the different newspaper clippings around the women. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a whole other topic, isn't it? Yes. Um, (laughs) But I I actually covered that in a lecture I gave to mark the anniversary of the election of Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangney. And I felt that those clippings were probably one of the most important primary sources I could use apart from autobiographies and papers. Yes, and you will notice how they do tend to concentrate on what they say. Mm. Yes, and how they said it. And, and how they said it. And the it. respect that the they respect. received from mm. their peers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, so it, it's a, there's a lesson to be seen there, I think. There <laughs> is. Carolyn, it's been absolutely wonderful and an absolute delight to speak with you, and I thank you very much for being so generous. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful. As, as I said, I think it's a great story, well worth seeing the story in all its detail. Exactly. I agree. And as 
you may be just becoming aware we've scratched the surface there's just so much in their lives to talk about and read about so do make sure you follow up if you're interested in uh, Carolyn's book The Blackburns Private Lives Public Ambition which is out through Melbourne University Press and it's a beautiful hardback book and I've been speaking with historian Carolyn Rasmussen. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm absolutely delighted to have with him, with me in the studio Professor Andrew Walter, who is um, a professor in international relations and he's based at the University of Melbourne. He's about to go on a trip to the UK, so he's stopped by before that trip so generously to talk about Brexit and all the related uh, developments. And there's been many since I last spoke with Andrew. I welcome Andrew now. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Great to be here. Thanks. Lovely to have you back in the studio. And um, I'm just going to play a 15-second clip from Channel 4 presenter Jon Snow, not the Game of Thrones Jon Snow, but an actual journalist um, who sums up the kind of bewilderment of the population in the UK as to what on earth is going on with Brexit. On Tuesday... They voted against Theresa May's deal on Wednesday against no deal, today against a second referendum and a process to lead to a softer Brexit. The only thing they can agree on tonight is they need more time. But for what? Well, what for is a great question, isn't it, Andrew? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's not just the UK that's bewildered, it's the rest of the world. And the UK is in severe danger of becoming a laughingstock, um, I guess particularly in the rest of the EU27, uh, but well beyond the borders of Europe. So uh, their reputation for hard-headed, pragmatic politics and diplomacy is effectively... That era is over. Mm, it is. Now, um, Andrew, I'm just going to ask you to move on to that other mic because in my ear it's a bit... Um, noisy and muffled but it may not be on air but I just don't want to take that risk so we don't ruin your fabulous dulcet voice there we go is that better yeah sounds very clear to me great just to make sure um so yes it it is kind of bewildering and we saw that whole as he said the the varying votes being put forward and uh and so Theresa May put forward her next deal which was it even very different from the previous deal that she put no uh superficially uh, a little bit and of course uh, there was a lot of uh, hoo-ha about her going to brussels and attempting to renegotiate the deal effectively she didn't come back with much as mm. almost everyone who knows anything about it predicted uh she said and hoped that there was a little bit of flexibility on the so-called Irish backstop, but her own Attorney General confirmed that in effect the bottom line was uh, that there was still a substantive risk of the e- uh, of Britain sorry, being trapped in the customs union. Mm. So not much different, no, and that was embarrassing for May and made it very difficult for her to attract as many of the anti-deal voters to her side and so she lost by again uh historic proportions uh, 149 votes 
that's pretty huge. Yeah, pretty embarrassing. Pretty embarrassing, yes. And uh, I think she was selling this deal as being slightly more lenient in the sense that the the UK wouldn't be trapped and there is this kind of anxiety around being trapped. Yeah. Can you, just for those who may not have heard our previous interview, just give us a little bit of background as to what is the sticking point, which is really largely the Irish backstop and what that means, because you provided such great historical context last time. Well, in the late 1990s, as people may remember, uh, there was the Good Friday Agreement uh, in uh, between uh, the UK and the Irish Republic over uh, the future of uh, the island of Ireland. And uh, the Good Friday Agreement... Uh, was, I think, in many circles in Westminster, but particularly in the hard-right uh, anti-European core of the Conservative Party, largely taken for granted after, um, after the early 2000s. And so... 1998 isn't that long away uh, when they reached that deal, but in in the campaign uh, to leave the European Union that that group waged very successfully along with UKIP and a few other groups uh, in 2016, they largely set aside the difficulties that uh, the Irish question might pose for Brexit. They were wrong in doing so, and it became increasingly obvious that the European Union in particular was all about defending the weak and the small, and Ireland is more exposed than any country beyond Britain uh, to Brexit. And so the EU has rightfully, I think, been sticking up for the Irish and for the integrity of Northern Ireland and the deal that was reached in the Good Friday Agreement, the integrity of the Northern Irish economy and freedom of movement and so mm. on. And so effectively, uh, the deal, May's deal, uh, we ought to remember and we have to emphasise, May's deal is not an, a deal about the future relationship. It's a withdrawal agreement. Uh, so there are years ahead uh, of what that future agreement will entail and the, therefore the relationship between Britain and the rest of the European Union, including mm. Ireland. But what the EU absolutely wanted to establish was that Ireland and Northern Ireland in particular would not be sacrificed uh, in Britain's initial withdrawal before those future negotiations about the relationship will take place. Yes, and the EU is rightly protective of the Republic of Ireland because a lot of other smaller countries in the EU are looking at this as an example of whether the EU would go into bat for them in any other circumstance. Well, absolutely. And if we look further back in history, of course, to the Second World War and the European Union was born out of the ashes of uh, the long civil war that Europe waged um, uh, from 1914, even earlier, I guess, 1914 to 1945. The European Union was in effect uh, a collective pledge not to sacrifice the interests of smaller countries and minorities within countries and spread spread between countries, as mm. you know, the famous Munich Agreement of 1938 sacrificed Czechoslovakia um, catastrophically. So, and so the European Union has, uh, in many ways, a long memory, and uh, that. 
past history is looming in the background. They don't can't be seen to be sacrificing Ireland. Mm. And the Conservatives, unfortunately, or at least a significant element of the right wing of the Conservative Party, have been willing to sacrifice Ireland. And that, that puts Britain in a very difficult, not to say uh, difficult political, but also a very difficult ethical position. Yes, it certainly does. And we've seen the rise of a group which is called very originally the independent group. Uh, We saw first up Labor MPs quitting the party because of largely either Brexit and or anti-Semitism that was highlighted as being present and many have debated whether Jeremy Corbyn himself um, has had anti-Semitic views or not. Mm. Um, He was egged himself recently. Um, (laughs) So there's there's certainly something going on at the moment. But then we also saw Conservative Tories quit their party as well to join this coalition of now independence. Yes, only a handful of Tories. Yes. Uh, and, and they were largely women. Yes, they were. Uh, and women upset with the direction of the Conservative Party under Theresa May herself, of course, mm. a woman. Uh, so that in itself is interesting. What what has happened, uh, and it hasn't been very long, but uh, well, a week and a half or so is a long time in UK politics, particularly yes. these days, that uh, independent group seems to have faded a bit. Um, and what's clear is is that both of the major parties are deeply riven internally and Mm. cannot agree on anything. Theresa May has lost control not only of her party but of Cabinet. There is an effective hardcore, the so-called European Research Group, of anti-Europeans within her own party and she has in effect been held hostage by them and hasn't been able to break out of the narrow party politics that might have allowed her to to forge cross-party parliamentary-wide Uh, coalitions uh, to achieve a softer Brexit. The Labour Party, on the other side, is also deeply riven. And so we've got this independent research group, which many people initially thought, aha, finally, the old traditional party politics, which is clearly not working, is breaking down. And maybe uh, the parliamentary majority that favours a softer form of Brexit than May's deal will now take over and reassert control of the process that clearly Theresa May has lost. But it hasn't turned out, at least so far, to be the case. Uh, So what's striking is not only that May has lost control of the Brexit process and those even cabinet rebellions uh, last week in terms of voting against government motions and so on. Um, So the cabinet is deeply divided. Um, But uh, what's clear is that not only has May lost control, but that Parliament has so far been unable to take control either through the mechanism of a breakaway independent group or through a cross-parliamentary coalition forming Mm. that could wrest control of the process from Theresa May. So UK politics is in a complete mess. It's paralysed effectively and Europe is rightly throwing up its hands and saying, we've done all we can. Mm. We're not going to sacrifice Ireland. You tell us what we want and we'll move forward. Well, yes, it's really imploding and there's a lot of 
Uh, as you say, there's the EU who is exasperated because they've had to renegotiate a deal that they said, that's it. Yeah. You know, there's no more change here. Yeah. Um, and some people thought the EU was holding out till closer to the deadline to have more leverage, but that was not the case. They're just yeah. not interested in renegotiating. It's Theresa May that's holding out yes. uh, to gain more leverage exactly. at the last minute. Yeah. And so she is going to put back to the parliament uh, the deal for a last time. Hopefully, it's well, well, the we third time. Uh, yes, the so-called meaningful vote three, yeah. and possibly even if she fails in that, which is Another. very likely, uh, the meaningful vote four, Jeez. and uh, the countdown to March twenty ninth uh, is uh, accelerating while all this is going on. However, this may not happen. Uh, the Speaker of the House yes. uh, yesterday uh, said that he would not allow a third vote on Theresa May's bill, uh, which would in effect be a vote on something that was not substantially changed. Mm. Uh, Harking back to a, to go further back in history, a 1604 convention, which says that effectively you can't keep asking Parliament to vote on the same thing, Mm. which, you know, to most people I I think would sound pretty reasonable. reasonable. Mm. Theresa May, I mean... Think about the extraordinary irony of this. Theresa May is insisting that it would be completely undemocratic to go against this so-called will of the people mm-hmm. to put uh, the the question of Brexit, now that much more information is available, uh, to back to the British people. No, that would be undemocratic and unacceptable. And yet she persists in suggesting that her deal ought to be continually put back into Parliament mm. while they voted against it the first two times at historic massive levels Um, and that this would be deeply democratic to keep putting it back to them until they give her the right answer. It's extraordinary and deeply hypocritical. And condescending. Yes. I know a lot of countries, particularly Scotland, have been just like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Why are we part of this again? Well, yeah. (laughs) And they're not that great themselves in terms of... Advocating in the UK Parliament at the moment. They're not, but they're also trapped. Yeah. Uh, you know, talking about, you know, the UK being trapped in a customs union because of uh, this withdrawal agreement. Uh, Scotland, to a substantial degree, doesn't have a lot of options either. So they're over a barrel because effectively the whole process of disentangling. Uh, 40 plus years um, of integration between the UK and the rest of the European Union has sent a very clear message to Scotland, Edinburgh, Mm -hmm. that disentangling more than 300 years of integration between Scotland and the rest of the UK would be even more difficult. Mm -hmm. So, So they don't have a lot of leverage. No, not at all. Yes, it is really interesting to watch this unfold because as we've said before, Scotland pretty clearly said they wanted to stay in the EU. So, you know, when when various parts of England and Scotland have said, no, Mm. we want to stay, and not everyone voted because, as we know, um, there was not compulsory voting for this. A lot of um, people who've been interviewed on UK television regret not having voted um, now that they're aware of the kind of magnitude of leaving the EU. And also, as you said, the implications of the Irish border and this becoming such a really, you know, a core issue, a key problem. Um, And even some people who said they voted to leave have changed their vote because of this information. So given that 
we saw these kind of this exodus of you know maybe a handful of of um, MPs on either side of politics move into an independent group. We saw Jeremy Corbyn react and finally give some concession, which was okay. Labor will support a people's vote. That that was put to the parliament last week, I believe, and it was not supported. No, no, not by a very wide uh, by a very wide margin. It was rejected. So, the problem is um, that even the so-called People's Vote campaign uh, weren't sure that this was the right time, mm. and it may be that the right time to introduce a second referendum motion in Parliament uh, that would have a plausible chance of passing would be after May's deal has definitively failed. Yeah, uh, it may be. Uh, um, that uh, because the Speaker prevents a th- so-called third meaningful vote, that it has already failed, but we won't know for a couple of days and until Theresa May goes to Brussels on Thursday and Boris Johnson has told her, well, you know, it'd be easy to uh, go back and renegotiate uh, this deal yet again. Uh, of course, if he's serious about that, it suggests that he learned nothing, nothing from yeah. his period as Foreign Secretary. Uh, the EU is not going to budge. No. Well, he, he didn't learn a whole lot at all in politics in general because mm. he was part of the, the leave... Yes. Campaign, one of the loudest voices. Indeed, that's right, absolutely, and insisted that Ireland wouldn't be an issue, wouldn't be a problem, it would be easy. Um, More funding to the NHS. That's right, £350 million a week. There would be a massive bonus uh, from leaving. It would be easy to reach a deal. So everything we've learned in the succeeding two and a half years about has utterly disproved all of those... Uh, vacuous and deeply misleading claims that unfortunately, yes, as you said earlier, too many people, I think, in the British electorate took seriously. They thought it would be easy, that the costs would be minimal and the benefits substantial. That is, I think, the consensus suggests that this is complete, was completely misleading. We now know that and therefore the case for a second referendum is substantial because, well, and in addition, there was Rus- Russian interference yes. uh, in the campaign finance for the election. So, uh, And the government doesn't want to investigate that seriously, unlike in the United States. It's pretty crazy. A lot of people have criticised the BBC for not covering that issue for so long when mm. other journalists were, particularly at The Guardian. Yeah. And we just saw an article uh, in The New Yorker, very extensive article on Aaron Banks, who was mm. you know, one of the key people who bankrolled yep. the Leave campaign. Yes, that's right. So we saw a range of votes being put up in succession, as we heard from Jon Snow before. And we did see a decent amount of support for a delay. And I'd like to understand, I guess, the implications of what a delay might be because there's all this discussion around how long the delay would be, what would happen if it was a very long delay, what even is the point of delaying it if you're not going to reach a consensus and it won't be able to be renegotiated. So what what was the Parliament voting on when it was talking about delaying Brexit and extending, seeking an extension from the EU of that article that the the Britain has actually invoked. Yeah, that's right. So, look, uh, the the essential thing about Parliament voting against um, 
uh, well, sorry, for a delay and thus against a so-called cliff edge no deal on mm. um, March 29th was to avoid the catastrophic consequences and uh, very disruptive consequences. I'm, as you said, flying into Britain uh, two days later uh, yes. and I'm not the only one who's a little worried about what might happen at ports in terms of medicines um, uh, and all sorts of other uh, services and goods that currently flow fairly freely across uh, the UK-European borders. So um, Parliament wants to avoid that. Again, this is a clear signal that Parliament knows what it doesn't want, Mm. but it doesn't have a sufficient consensus within and across Parliament or a majority consensus to insist on precise details of what it wants. So it votes against a no deal, which is a bit like voting Mm. against global warming um, without saying what should be done to mitigate and prevent global warming. Um, so it doesn't want a no deal. Doesn't want a no deal. It wants an extension, but is unable at the moment to specify how long. Theresa May has accepted that she will need, if her deal passes in the so-called meaningful vote three mm. or four, five, six, seven, eight, um, that she will need a so-called technical. Uh, extension to allow for Parliament to ratify the deal and to uh, uh, adopt some implementing um, legislation and policies. Hmm. So even she in the best possible circumstances wants an extension because this has run right down to the wire and the UK is not ready. Um, the UK uh, would obtain that from the European Union. Mm. Uh, Is it up to the European Union to say yes or no? Absolutely. The EU 27 must unanimously vote to accept any extension of Article 50. If Theresa May's deal fails, which looks likely, uh, then the UK is going to need more time Uh Again, from a rational, sensible view of politics, the UK will need more time because, as I said earlier, there is patently no consensus within Parliament on what to do as a plan B. Theresa May's plan B was, as she said, no deal is better than a bad deal. Mm. Well, she's got to come back with a bad deal after (laughs) more than a year of negotiations. So... Parliament has said, we don't want your no deal, your plan B. But they don't have a plan C. Uh, So there have been suggestions that if May's deal fails in Parliament, and we'll know that in a couple of days, let's hope, um, then there should be a series of consecutive votes on alternative options, which would include things like a second referendum, Mm. May's deal up or down or remain, um, uh, a new election, a uh, a general election, other potential options, uh, but you know, specifying things like Norway Plus and Canada Plus and so on are, are on the table. But, but at the moment, it doesn't appear that there would be a majority in Parliament for any single one of those options. Mm. So that's the fundamental problem. When you talk about Norway, is this what people refer to as a softer Brexit? Yes. So Norway is in the single market and the customs union. So Labour's position, um, as I think we talked about last time, is to remain in the customs union and that would essentially protect open trade in goods, or at least so Labour thinks. It wouldn't actually in practice because Mm. most goods trade is in fact highly dependent on technical standards, uh, equivalents and all of that, which is 
which is all about what essentially what the single market is all about, uh, equivalence in technical standards and so on. So Norway uh, has a deal with, uh, with the European Union. It's a member of the European Economic Area, and that means membership of the single market and the customs union, but it has flexibility on many other things. So it would be the softest of Brexit options. There possibly would be a consensus within Parliament for that. The problem that Parliament has and why it's been unwilling to effectively make that explicit is that it's not clear there's much of a political consensus within the UK because Norway has freedom of movement and that's one of Theresa May's red lines and her interpretation of the people's will of uh, June 2016 was that there had to be an end to free movement. Yes, having hard borders and it really, you know, closing the borders really to immigration or reducing it and allowing the England and the UK to have greater control over who comes to their country to work, to live, to, to holiday... Yeah, they're very attracted to Australia's model, uh, Canada's model, where people either buy their way in, in the case of Canada, uh, rich people uh, buy their passports, um, or uh, in the case of Australia, you have a points-based system which allows uh, the government to select on the basis of skills and uh, qualifications. Um, it's also, I think, so that's the that's the sort of rash, that's the economic rationale. The political rationale is, of course, it's all about harking back to the Anglosphere and so on, which, of course, uh, some politicians in Australia are attracted towards as well, but which I yes. think is uh, very retrogressive politics. Extremely, uh, a lot of Britain, Britons at the time of the vote were quite nostalgic for the old Britain, which did have some racist overtones about it. Um, But I'm interested in you talk about the fact that, like, we don't know whether the British people would be for a softer Brexit or a, you know, Norway-style agreement. Has polling been done around what the majority of Britons actually think around things like the people's vote, having a second referendum, you know, a softer Brexit. Is there any understanding of the general population's view and whether it's shifted? Because it does seem like anecdotally there are stronger views around this now. Yeah, look, it's and it's shifted in, all, in many different directions. So you're absolutely right, as you said earlier, that some people now regret not voting, particularly the young. They didn't realise what was at stake. They believed Boris Johnson and others, I guess, the stuff on the side of the bus. Um, But there are also people who voted Remain and who don't want a second referendum because they just want it to be over and done with. They've had enough of all of these arguments and the way that increasingly British politics has become toxified, if that's a a word. Um, So there are people on both sides who've switched, but um, most indications suggest that probably now it would be about 52% Remain and maybe 48% uh, leave. Uh, But that's not a sufficient margin uh, to be very comfortable for those Remainers who think that a second yeah. referendum is is the, the right solution mm. uh, because you can imagine just how nasty the politics of betrayal would figure very highly in a second referendum campaign we told the people we told the politicians to deliver brexit they failed they've betrayed the true nation the will of the true nation you can imagine mm. and there have been 
some pretty uh, extreme uh, leavers um, who've talked uh, that kind of language of betrayal um, and mixed in with a kind of toxic English nationalism, I think it would be very dangerous. So there are risks in a second referendum. In terms of um, the uh, what the populace, uh, what the what the what the electorate thinks about alternatives to May's deal, like Norway Plus, like a customs union, to be honest, um, most of the indications are that, one, there's no consensus, and so therefore the lack of consensus within Parliament is reflective of the lack of consensus in society. Um, but that, two, probably what uh, most people, if they understand the details of the alternatives... Um, to May's deal, like Customs Union, Canada, so-called Canada Plus, a free trade deal with a few bits added on, or at the very soft end, Norway. Mm. Um, to the extent that people have any deep understanding of that, which must still be doubted, uh, they tend to opt on balance. There tends to be a majority in favour of something soft. Um, after all, um, that's what people who voted, 52% yes. who voted in favour of Brexit, thought they might get. Yeah. Uh, back in mid-2016, um, the Conservative Party, the Leave campaign, told them it would be easy and soft, that mm. the costs would be minimal and the benefits large. Mm. Well, to finish out our conversation then, would it would it just be a great solution to get rid of all the parliamentarians who've been elected because they clearly can't do their job, which yeah. is to reach a consensus and compromise on certain points to deliver for what the people want right now, would it be better that the next elected representatives could represent their own constituencies better if they have a clearer understanding of what their constituents want? Yeah. Well, how to forge uh, a consensus is going to be a problem, not just uh, in the event of, say, a longer... Say, May's deal fails, mm. there's a longer extension, and the EU might rightly say you need a lot more time to work out what you want and yeah. you have no idea at the moment or no consensus. Mm. Uh, plenty of ideas, but no consensus. So you need, so let's say, 21 months uh, to the end of, uh, well, the year after next. Um, what would happen during that period? It's not obvious that a, another uh, election would solve the problem because the electorate is still deeply split. People have suggested more radical alternatives like citizens' assemblies and so on. So um, these uh, experiments have been tried, including in places like Australia and elsewhere. Um, but that, you know, referenda are not a traditional part of the way that the UK governs itself. But citizens' assemblies uh, would be a further step away from the traditions of Westminster and mm. the sovereignty of Parliament. I'm doubtful whether um, anyone would be willing, or at least the leaders of the major parties, because it would be accepting defeat effectively and saying that Westminster politics is broken yes. on this most fundamental question of Britain's future. Yes. Well, I mean, a citizen's jury is really more of a PR exercise in most cases. Exactly, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine it working in this And the case. idea that this would change minds of the yeah. European Research Group, the hardliners in the Tory party or the people in the Labour Party uh, who see Europe as the enemy and the friend of rampant capitalism, which includes Jeremy Corbyn, the idea that this would change minds uh, and, and heal all the splits... 
of uh, in both parties, both major parties, which have grown up and become exacerbated over the past two years, I think is a fantasy. Mm. Well, it seems we've reached a stalemate. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. No one can predict the future. No. So is, is this week really make or break? Well, next week? <laughs> we've said that before. Yeah. Um, look, I think it's getting close to make or break, but um, it, if, if May is allowed by the Speaker to have a third meaningful vote and it yes. fails, but she gets very close, then, you know, meaningful vote four with another tweak might yeah. happen next week or so. But, um, and uh, it depends on what to uh, the European Council meeting on Thursday delivers to May. Um, mm. You know, there's, I guess, always the possibility of another tweak and some further minor concession on the part of the uh, EU27, but I think it's unlikely. So mm. it may drift into next week, but March 29th is a hard deadline and yep. decisions have to be made and the European Union needs to agree to an extension before that date and they can do it late uh, before March 29th, a couple of days before, but they cannot do it on March 29th. Put it in your diaries, everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've marked it in mine. <laughs> I hope that you do get into the UK okay Me and too. out of it. <laughs> I'm told British Airways has a special deal that they'll fly oh, really? whatever, but we'll see. That's maybe just a rumour. Yeah, good luck, Andrew, and thank you so much for coming in and explaining what is a very complicated situation at the moment. Yeah, complicated but fun. Thanks, yes, Amy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've been speaking with Professor Andrew Walter from the University of Melbourne. He's a professor in industrial relations. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.